How are America's cities preparing for the new normal of more frequent extreme weather? Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded at the Commonwealth Club of California and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. From fires and floods to droughts and hurricanes, recent years have brought a raft of extreme weather disasters costing the U.S. hundreds of billions of dollars in damages. On today's show, we'll hear what some cities are doing to recover, rebuild, and prepare for the next megastorm. Our guests are the mayors of three cities on the front lines. Mayors are just about solving the problem. That's what we do. We, we solve problems. Steve Benjamin is mayor of Columbia, South Carolina. In 2015, historic floods hit the Columbia area, killing 19 people and causing more than $1 billion in damage. The city also endured heavy winds and rain from Hurricane Florence in 2018. We're already living with some of these climatic events. And so for us, it's not about a debate as to whether sea level rise is a true or, or not true phenomenon or, or to what extent it's going to affect us. Francis Suarez took office as mayor of Miami in 2017 in the aftermath of Hurricane Irma, which devastated South Florida and caused more than 100 deaths. Coming from Houston, the energy capital of the world, we recognize that uh, you can't just continue to do things the same old way. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner was in the national spotlight when Hurricane Harvey dumped an unprecedented 50 inches of rain on the city. We'll hear from all three mayors later in the program. First, Greg sits down with Seattle Times reporter John Talton. Western Washington State was recently hit with some extreme winter weather, at least for the region. The Seattle area was spared the worst, but predictions of a monster storm still sent people rushing to stores to stock up on food. And across the country, it's been a very cold, very snowy winter. Greg started by asking John about his experience of the most recent snowmageddon. I think that the snowmageddon was a bit overrated. <laughs> I mean, we had a big snowstorm, as I recall, in 2007 or 2008. And we maybe got about six inches downtown, which is big for Seattle. And this was nothing like that. I think we got maybe a couple of inches. The larger story is that Seattle has had an unusually warm and dry winter. And then we got this snow, which hit different parts of the region with different severity. So downtown, we didn't get much snow at all. But... Uh, north and south of us, people got a lot. Of course, when you got into the uh, foothills of the Cascades, there was a lot of snow. There were some stores that had plenty of provisions and some stores that got all the attention that were wiped out. But Seattle is a little bit like Cincinnati, where I used to live, and there was a wonderful Jim Borgman cartoon that showed this guy in a basement shivering, surrounded by boxes of supplies, and the radio uh, was saying, uh, light dusting of snow expected, and the Cincinnatian was yelling, we're all gonna die, <laughs> and Seattleites are a little like that too. So John, in December of 2018, you wrote a column, you're a business and economics columnist for the Seattle Times, you wrote a column that climate change should be our biggest priority after the events of 2018. What prompted you to write that column? Well, I think the biggest thing was the United Nations report uh, that generally concludes that climate change, human-caused climate change, is getting worse faster than climate scientists had expected. 
and it's now undeniable. And my column was saying that climate change was the biggest story of 2018, and it will be the biggest story of every year for the rest of our lives and our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. There have been lots of UN reports uh, going back decades predicting some uh, pretty dramatic consequences. What was it about this one that got through to you, John? Well, this one was the most severe uh, yet as far as both the evidence of climate change happening now and the enormous costs that it's extracting uh, not just from the developing world, but from the developed world. And this ranges in everything from droughts to mass migrations of people, crop failures, uh, monster storms, fires. Uh, but it's not just the UN report. I mean, for a number of years, the Pentagon has identified climate change as uh the biggest national security threat that we face. And going all the way back to the 1970s, ExxonMobil uh, knew that climate change was happening and it was being caused by burning fossil fuels into the atmosphere. Washington state has twice in recent years rejected proposals at the ballot box statewide to put a price on carbon pollution. Um, why did those two ballot initiatives fail? And is anyone connecting them to the strange weather, strange climate, snow, fires, storms, etc.? Well, I can think of, of three factors. Number one is that if you took the Seattle area out of Washington, it would be Idaho. Washington is kind of a purple state. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is that the fossil fuel interests spent millions and millions of dollars on misinformation about this latest ballot initiative. And then the third thing was that it was crafted in a way to try to get as many stakeholders as possible to buy into it. But it was also complicated so that the way the money would be spent uh, would be decided by a board. Now that board would be overseen by the legislature, but the people who wanted to defeat it made it seem like this was some kind of anti-democratic power grab. And you put those things together and there was enough confusion and misinformation that this latest one especially was defeated. Uh, people like to know where their money's going to go. If they're going to be taxed, they want to know where it's going to go um, rather than yeah, trust a group of people to make decisions that they... Um, interesting. Uh, Washington Governor Jay Inslee is mulling a presidential run. Looks like he's going to jump in as the climate candidate. What do you think of his prospects? And particularly since uh, twice his state has rejected carbon pricing, which he wants to take nationally. Uh, we need it. We need a, all the candidates to be addressing climate change as their number one issue, and I applaud Governor Inslee for uh, making it explicit. Uh, he's leading a number of initiatives in the legislature that go beyond the carbon tax, and we also have things in the Puget Sound region such as growing transit uh, many of the people, I think more, more than half the people who work downtown take transit. They don't uh, drive individually in cars. 
and so we are making some progress here and people are getting woke to the danger uh, so I, I think that Inslee has some things he can run on. There's a problem of name recognition. And then there is a problem that while a majority of Americans agree that climate change is real and it's happening and it's human caused, uh, what are they willing to do about it? What are they willing to pay? What are the fundamental changes to their lifestyles are they willing to make? Right, which gets to the Green New Deal, which is getting a lot of excitement in Washington. Barney Frank, longtime Democratic liberal member of Congress, recently said the Green New Deal is a loser for 2020 for Democrats. Uh, what does that say? What do you say about that as an economics columnist? And what does that say about the prospects of Jay Inslee being a climate candidate when Barney Frank says the Green New Deal is a loser? Uh, we've got to change the conversation from the costs of going to a less carbon dependent economy to the costs and growing costs of climate change caused by extracting and burning carbon. Uh, that's the big deal. That's the conversation we've got to have and the language we've got to have. We sent men to the moon and back safely, repeatedly. Uh, we built the atomic bomb with the Manhattan Project, so it's not as if we can't do great things as Americans. It's almost as if we've become this uh, decadent country, and by that I mean we're out of new ideas and this very risk-averse country. And again, the, the uh, fossil fuel industries pour huge sums of money into misinformation, and so... Uh, the resistance is understandable, but I think it's going to gradually melt away because of a couple of things. Number one, as climate change gets worse, just wait till this summer, uh, more and more people are going to accept that something has to be done. And number two, more and more young people are going to make up more voters, and they're the ones who are going to have to live with the consequences much more than baby boomers who are going to die off. So the Green New Deal is a good start. Now, the Senate's going to be in Republican hands for the foreseeable future. So you're not going to have a New Deal kind of uh, vast passage of laws. But starting the conversation is enormously important. How is the Seattle Times covering climate? Do you think they're covering it frequently enough, prominently enough, uh, as a real concern here today? Well, if I were the king of the world, we would have climate change stories on the front page every single day. I think for what we do, the Seattle Times covers climate change pretty well. Uh, we're one of the few metropolitan papers left with a science and environmental reporter and she's covered extensively the effects of climate change on the waters here in the Puget Sound and offshore in the Pacific and how they're warming and the effects on the fisheries and the salmon. And we certainly make use of our news services and I'm allowed to write about it a lot. But all this cold weather, has that caused people to say, well, the global warming, it's not happening. If it's if global warming, what's with all this, you know, major snowstorms? There's significant snow up and down 
the West Coast and the middle of the country is just, you know, piled high in snow. Well, there's a difference between weather and climate. And as I say, Seattle has had a, an unusually warm and dry winter, except for this snow. And so, at least here in Seattle, we're not seeing anybody saying, oh gosh, it, it's snowing, and so climate change must be a hoax. And I, I think that that little meme of denial is more and more uh, fading away. Uh, you know, these Arctic blasts are part of climate change. That's why global warming is probably not the best way to describe it because mm -hmm. it is climate change. And so the scientists who study climate uh, tend to attribute some of these uh, winter blasts that, say, hit the Midwest or the Northeast uh, as being worsened by climate change. But if you look overall, American winters are milder now. Right, which is one reason I used to think that uh, the Pacific Northwest wouldn't be a place where people would migrate to in a dis climate-disrupted world. Uh, there would be maybe a little less rain, a little more sun, uh, temperate climates. But, of course, you got the fires to worry about. Uh, there really is no haven to escape to. But some people used to look at the Pacific Northwest as a place that would be better off than certainly the Sun Belt parts of the country where it's really, really hot and going to get hotter. The Pacific Northwest was a place that some people look to on the maps. They've got water, food, but that may be changing. Well, we don't want anybody to know that because <laughs> the issue of climate refugees is real and it's going to grow worse. And so there are going to be mass migrations internationally caused by climate. This is one of the things that is behind the Syrian civil war. But my hometown of Phoenix, the fifth largest city in the country, is completely unsustainable and completely unprepared for climate change. And so in the decades ahead, you'll, you will see a mass migration out of the Sun Belt. And uh, I hope they go back to the Midwest and not come up here. John Talton from the Seattle Times, thanks for coming on Climate One. My pleasure, thank you. You're listening to Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks the mayors of Miami, Houston, and Columbia, South Carolina, how their cities are facing up to the new normal of more frequent extreme weather. It's going to impact us on the short term. It impacts us in the medium term. And certainly, of course, you wonder and you worry about the existential threats uh, to the long-term viability of the city. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Let's turn now to our conversation with three mayors on the front lines of climate change. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, and Columbia, South Carolina Mayor Steve Benjamin. This conversation was recorded in early 2018, not long after hurricanes Harvey and Irma had battered the regions. Here again is your host, Greg Dalton. Mayor Turner, let's begin on August 25th, uh, 2017, mm -hmm. when 
a mega storm is making landfall in Texas. You're facing decisions, evacuate or not. You have to be thinking about the ghost of Katrina. So take us back to that day and what you were thinking about and, and what, yeah, just where you were on that day. Uh, on August 25th, I was at the, uh, uh, the HEC Center, our emergency center, uh, command post. In fact, uh, we were watching the, monitoring the storm very, very closely. Uh, a couple of days before, we didn't quite know where it was going to hit. Uh, and then they informed us that uh, it was going to hit not uh, along the Houston area, but uh, further, further down uh, south. Uh, and it was not going to be the hurricane hitting Houston, Harris County area. It was going to be a water event for us. A lot of rain, but didn't really anticipate how much. Um, it was no time to, to try to evacuate anyone. When we, uh, the city did evacuate back in 2005, um, number one, if you're going to evacuate, you, you've got, there's a lot of preparation that you have to take into a place. You've got to make sure that there's adequate fuel supply along the evacuation routes. When we did it in 2005, about 120 people died on the freeway because the freeways were like parking lots. You literally could go and get you a hamburger, come back, and you were still in, in the same place. Uh, so we decided to uh, just keep people in place, uh, but to have some pre-positioned shelters just in case we needed them. Um, on Friday, the storm hit, the hurricane landed by 10 p.m. On Friday, things were good in Houston, Harris County. On Saturday, things were still pretty good. Uh, on Sunday, at about 5 p.m., um, the National Weather Report indicated to us that there were three bands coming in and each one of those bands would carry anywhere between seven to nine inches of rain. That's when we knew things were going to get bad. And so um, it was at that point in time we started getting people out of the low-lying areas and getting them into shelters. The first band came through, they were right, seven to nine inches. Second band came through, another seven to nine. The third band came through, and that's when water came out of all of the bayous, and that's where the heavy flooding took place. And w were you thinking about climate at that time, or you didn't have time to think about why? You're just thinking about, boy, we got to deal with this water and these people. Was there a climate connection to it at that well, point? Well, that's, that's been, yeah, that was a climate connection. Just didn't start there. I mean, you know, anybody who's been keeping up with any, all of this knows that we have a client problem, you know, uh, it's real, the science is real, so it didn't just become real on August the 25th, it was real before. <laughs> um, bear in mind, in the city of Houston, uh, we flooded in, um, in 2015, it was the Memorial Day flood, and then on um, April the 17th of 2016. Flood day. Um, on tax, it was the tax day flood. And, uh, and then this one here on August 25th, of course, was Harvey. And um, more rain fell on the city of Houston and the region than on any other city at any point in time in United States history. Uh, and it ended up being the second most costly a storm, natural disaster for the, for, the, for the country. Yeah, it's tied with Katrina, I read. Right. Yeah, uh, Mayor Suarez, in your victory speech the night you won election, you talked about jobs, transit, crime, housing, and climate. I don't think many mayors mention climate in their victory speech. Yeah, you know, we are ground zero for uh, resiliency and, and climatic events that affect our quality of life. And I think um, what we're seeing is other parts of the world and other parts of the, of the country are using that as sort of a counter brand against the city of Miami. And so they're saying, you know, yeah, the city's great, the low taxes, whatever, but don't go there because you're going to be underwater. 
And so as mayor uh, and, and as a father, it's a concern that it's going to impact us on the short term. It impacts us in the medium term. And certainly, of course, you wonder and you worry about the existential threats uh, to the long-term viability of the city. We passed, um, right in my election, a what, what, they, what they called a Miami Forever bond, mm -hmm. which was in part a resiliency bond, where we are, our voters did something very unusual. They voted to tax themselves because the, the issue is so acute and it's so macro that um, you know they voted to create $200 million of resources for us to begin meaningfully uh, dealing with our climatic events, which include a range of things from uh, king tide flooding to tidal surge during hurricanes uh, to annual rainfall that is significantly greater than uh, what we've experienced and or what we have a capacity to experience. So um, I think any re mayor responsibly should have made this and should make this uh, a major priority, particularly if you're the mayor of Miami. Right. Mayor Benjamin, tell us how climate, is it only sort of these frontline cities that are thinking about climate change, Miami, Houston? You know, as we look around the country, where does climate rank in terms of traditional concerns for mayors, potholes, jobs, housing? You know, does climate really rank? It ranks very high. Uh, climate Mayor's Caucus, uh, well over 300 mayors signed up. Uh, we are, I'm, I'm also uh, helping lead as one of the co-chairs with the mayor of Salt Lake City, the mayor of San Diego, and, uh, and Mayor Suarez is a former uh, neighbor, the former mayor of Miami Beach, Philip Levine, uh, mayors for 100% clean energy. Those of us who are committed to be ready for 100 by 2036, uh, we've been joined by 200 of our colleagues all across the country who recognize, you know, the, the reality of what you hear from Mayor Turner and Suarez is that, um, Washington D.C. may may dilly dally uh, at times, and some of that some of that dysfunction is due to state government uh, um, policy making or the lack of policy making. Uh, but mayors have to get the job done every single day. Uh, and that's that's regardless of party, uh, regardless of geography. In my city, our council voted unanimously. We vote unanimously on almost nothing. I might add, <laughs> unanimously uh, to to invest in. Uh, in stormwater, new stormwater infrastructure, $100 million uh, to address our top uh, problem areas in, in, in our city. Um, uh, we're going to issue our very first green bond, uh, you know, in the heart of the, of the old South, uh, a, a deep red state. So w w mayors are working um, across party lines, arm in arm, to try and, and deliver solutions and trying to put some of these major challenges in people speak every single day. And I will tell you that our, our, our citizens are a lot smarter than people think they are, a lot more engaged, and certainly care a great deal more about preserving the earth that we've inherited, uh, protecting it for, for our, our children uh, yet to be here. 2017 was the most expensive uh, year in U.S. history in terms of major events driven by climate change. Former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman joined me on stage, and she said that cities and states may not be able to rely on the federal government for disaster relief funds. Uncle Sam is out of money, and we have a federal deficit that we're going out of sight. Uh, so we are already in that position. I mean, we do have to start looking at our priorities again and assessing where it is we'd want to spend money, what are the things for which the federal government is responsible, what's going to fall solely on the states, and what's going to be up to the individual uh, and local government and the individual. But uh, as far as when do we run out of money, we're there. That's former New Jersey governor and former EPA chief under President George W. Bush, Christine Todd Whitman. Mayor Turner, Texas still wants, I think, $61 billion from the federal government for, to rebuild after Hurricane Harvey. What's the status of that? And what do you, your comment to Governor Whitman saying, Uncle Sam's not going to keep writing these big checks? 
Well, to keep from writing big checks, it's important for cities to be uh, built stronger and more resilient. Otherwise, whatever funding you get, you're providing funding for failure. Uh, let me just say for, for us, and what I've said to people in Congress, is that uh, it's don't just provide us with enough funding to put us uh, back where we were prior to Harvey. What we are needing now is, is funding to, to build a much more resilient city because there will be another storm, okay? Climate change is real. Uh, we are built on the Bayou City, and so um, we have to provide um, more capacity on our bayous. We have to put more uh, detention basins in, in place. Uh, there's a need for, for example, a third reservoir in, certain, in parts of Houston. If the hurricane had hit Galveston Bay, and there had been a huge storm surge, then that water would have come back up into the city of Houston, and it would have been horrific. Uh, the Port of Houston, for example, is not just important to the city of Houston or the state of Texas, but it's important to the country as a whole. You know, a large percentage of the fuel uh, that's refined and come out of the port uh, supplies areas throughout the country. And we are advocating for what we call the coastal spine, something that they put in the Netherlands that will help to prevent the storm surge. It is a huge cost. It's about a $12 billion item. But assume that the storm hurricane had hit Galveston Bay, it would have been exponentially more. And so on the Houston level, locally, what, what are we doing? Houston purchases more solar power um, than any city in the country. Um, we are going to meet that goal of 100% on renewables. I've said to developers, we're not going to continue building in the city like we've done before. Uh, that's, this is a new day. And so doing the same thing and not expecting people to flood makes no sense. So we are changing that. But the federal government has a role to play. You stop the cities, you stop the country. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the future of American cities in the era of uh, climate change. I'm Greg Dalton. My guest is Steve Benjamin, mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, Francis Suarez, mayor of Miami, and Sylvester Turner, mayor of Houston. So, Mayor Benjamin, let's talk about the, the political level of this. You know, how does the, the conversation that happens, you know, in, in your city compare with, with statewide? It wasn't your state, but it was a state <coughs> nearby that tried to outlaw climate change famously once. So how, how does this trickle up to the state level? It's fantastic when you sit here and you listen to these two men, and I'll tell you, it's, it's consistent across the country. And you talk about these major issues. Uh, you don't know if you're talking to a Republican or a right. Democrat. Because mm -hmm. mayors are just about solving the problem. That, that's what we do. We, 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 we solve problems. Uh, we solve them differently in 2018 than we might have 20 years ago. But what you hear here is you hear depth of experience from experienced state policymakers and local policymakers who are just about getting the job done. 85% of all the people in this country live in cities and metropolitan economies. 89% uh, of all jobs. 91% of America's uh, nearly $20 trillion GDP is created in cities and metropolitan economies. Mayor Turner boasts a, a GDP larger than that of the country of Sweden. Francis Suarez, uh, Miami has a, a larger GDP than Hong Kong, okay? I mean, the mayors that we have out here this week mm -hmm. interfacing with the tech community uh, represent 10% of America's GDP, I mean, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in one room. So, when, you, so when we go to Washington, that was a long way of saying, when we go to Washington and we're talking about repatriating tax dollars back home, because that's what we're talking about. This, this is not going to Washington asking for money 
to come back to save Houston. Houston sent that money to Washington. Uh, we're not talking about uh, asking Tallahassee to send money back to Miami. Miami is driving the Florida economy. I mean, so uh, we're talking about how do you make smart investments. And now while we're out here, we're talking about how do you, how do you invest in true urban resilience that helps us uh, res respond to and, 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 and recover from, but even more importantly, how do we start using some of these inc this incredible focus on, I mean, this, we, we're in this, in this bubble in Northern California right here, we're talking about the ability to use real, real data and predictive analytics and just the advent of AI. What can we start doing together to help us all make smarter strategic <clears throat> investments on the front end? Uh, to help prepare for and respond to these things on, on the back end. But this dialogue is happening with mayors all across the country of all stripes, uh, uh, all shapes and sizes, partisan backgrounds, and we have to keep pushing because some of the dysfunction that we're seeing in Washington, some of the bad policy making, is really seeping down in our state governments. Uh, but when you have events like this, regrettably, when you have events like, like we all have had, it starts pushing some people in, in our state capitals, and, our, and our, our city hall is four blocks from our state capital. They start thinking a little, a little more wisely because obviously their constituents, our, our mutual constituents, are feeling the pain and they're, and they're pressing them to make better policy. Let's ask that, uh, Mayor Suarez. What kind of movement has there been among the Republican uh, delegation in Tallahassee or in Washington on climate after Irma? You know, uh, from my perspective, I was sort of pleasantly surprised that, that the Republican legislature did fund or upgrade to our stormwater master plan and that it survived the veto <coughs> plan. I was uh, frankly a little shocked, uh, pleasantly shocked. But it, it allowed us to begin the planning process of how do we spend these dollars in a way that is, is the best expenditure because obviously we have a fiduciary duty also to our residents to make sure um, that we that we spend dollars effectively and efficiently to deal with and address uh, these issues, um, but but as 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 Mayor Benjamin was saying, you know, we just don't have the luxury of looking right. at the world that way. You know, for us, uh, it's really problem solution, and and so my responsibility as a mayor is to go up and educate the state legislature or the governor, whomever the governor or legislators are, and tell them these are our problems. We are major tax generators and we deserve uh, uh, an investment. And I, and I think the other thing is that a lot of these climatic issues are changing the conversation because it's an economic conversation. And I think once you make it an economic conversation, I think you depoliticize it a little bit, you, you departize it a little bit, and you make it about return on investment, you make it about what are the risks, the economic risks involved. Um, when we're uh, growing at, at the level that we're growing, we're talking about a billion dollars of new real estate a year for the last few years. So the exposure on those kinds of assets should worry any conscientious elected official. Uh, yeah, Mayor Turner, you came from the state legislature in Texas. You know, how has, has Harvey changed the conversation? Greg Abbott, the, the governor of Texas, not particularly inclined to talk about climate change. Did, did you just you talk about it in different language, as Mayor Suarez was saying? I don't know if we talk about it in different languages. I think uh, climate change has a way of making things um, uh, bipartisan. And what I mean by that, uh, when, it, when, it, when we flooded in 2015, there were certain geographical areas that were flooded, primarily in your, the poor areas. Uh, the tax day flood on April 17th of 2016, uh, same, about the same. 
Um, and so there were other areas were still high and dry. But Harvey said, uh, let me be indiscriminate. And so when Harvey came and 51 inches of rain fell, if you were in poor neighborhoods, uh, you were already on the margins, you got pressed down, you flooded. If you were in the affluent communities, you really flooded. Sugarland too, yeah. So from, from the northwest to the northeast side of town, you flooded. It didn't say you're a Republican neighborhood, so we're going <laughs> to bypass exactly. you. Exactly. Um, it, it, yeah. it, it, came, it came down. And so now you have all of these families and all of these neighborhoods that have been adversely affected, and they don't want to flood again. And, and then you want the city to continue to grow. You want people to continue to be proud of where they live. live. You want people to come. We are the energy, Houston is the energy capital of the world. A lot of oil and gas companies. But at the same time, uh, you have a lot of oil and gas companies in the city of Houston that recognize that we need to focus now on renewables, uh, that we need to do some other things to be more resilient because we still want people to come and be a part of our city. Um, and that's a good thing. So uh, from my vantage point, what I say to what I say to people and to the, you know, yes, city of Houston is a blue city. Um, but if you take the blue city out of the red state, then you come to a standstill. And we have to we have to focus on results. It's all about results and meeting people's needs. So I think the reality is because of Harvey and so many, on so many levels, uh, people recognize that you cannot ignore things any longer. Their constituents are not going to allow them to ignore things, and we have to build a much more resilient city. And if they don't help us to build a more resilient city, it's their constituents that's going to hold them accountable for that. Bright lights, Houston is hot tonight. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with mayors on the front lines of climate change. Coming up, we'll hear how their cities are leading the way toward a clean energy economy. Whether it's banning bump stocks or being the first city to ban texting while driving or making this commitment to 100% clean energy, it's amazing how other cities then begin to follow. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the challenges of steering America's cities into the future with Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, and Columbia, South Carolina Mayor Steve Benjamin. Here's Greg. You're here, uh, three mayors of Columbia, South Carolina, uh, Miami, and Houston, meeting with tech companies. Mayor Suarez, the future of cities is in flux right now with all this talk of autonomous cars clogging our streets. Uh, Silicon Valley wants us to think it's going to be utopia, and it's going to be wonderful, it's going to reduce pollution, and we'll have more time. How are you thinking about the future of Miami in a, in a world with robotic cars running around? I, I think that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of the disruptions that we're feeling as cities. Uh, I, I do, my personal belief is that we are very, very, in a very near-term future, every car is going to be electric. I, I believe that. Um, I think most, if not all, cars will be autonomous. And I also think that a, a lot of uh, some of the problems that have plagued us for many, many years, um, the, tr the solutions will be things that we don't really particularly anticipate. For example, um, we have 2.8 million people in Dade County. 2.1 million have driver's license and they 
and each person with a driver's license basically has a car on average in, in, in the city. What I think is going to happen uh, in Miami is people are going to start working either from home or from a co-working space near home. So they probably won't have to get in a car to begin with. That decongests our roads significantly. Certainly it improves our carbon footprint dramatically. But I, I think uh, when you consider the fact that we're, we're going to have electric vehicles, uh, I would say in the next you know, predominantly in the next 36 to 48 months, um, and, and we're gonna change the way that we uh, behave in terms of where we work. I mean, the most ubiquitous thing, every person in this room, I promise you, has the ability to teleconference from their phone. Every single person in this room. There's not one person in here that cannot do that. So I, I, to me, it, it seems almost irrational at this point that we all get up in the morning, get in a car, and drive at the same time <laughs> to a place of work. I mean, it almost seems like a very irrational decision. Um, but I, I really think that in the near future, um, we're going to radically change. And I think that's, that's only going to make cities more vibrant. I, I, I kind of agree with Major, Mayor Benjamin that, and, 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 and certainly Mayor Turner that you know, the vibrancy of cities is what's propelling this national economy. And I don't, I don't see threats. I think I, I see opportunities. Mayor Turner, uh, Houston is a city built on, on sprawl, obviously energy capital, a lot of oil and right, gas there. Right. You know, is the car the future? And how is Houston going to be more or less car-centric um, city? That's a pretty big yeah. transformation of land use and everything else. Right. We made some choices in the 1990s that um, we are having to deal with today. In the 1990s, we decided we were going to be a roadway capacity, uh, and we did. And if those who are familiar with the city of Houston, the 610 loop, and then there's the Beltway, like a loop, and then there's the Grand Parkway. And as we have built them, they have come. And the congestion uh, is, still, is still there. What we've decided uh, now, and it's a part of climate change and flooding and everything else, is that we have to, our transportation system now has to change. Uh, and I, when I came into office in January of 2016, I said we needed a paradigm shift. And so the focus now has to be on multimodal form of transportation. We have to provide people with a lot of different options. Uh, we, have to, we have to be much more aggressive in, in whether it's light rail or BRTs or, or you name it. We have to move in that direction. We have to design and, con and construct a city that's more walkable, pedestrian friendly. So the reality is, is that we have to make some changes, not just for transportation, but so much of transportation is, is tied to how we develop, and how we deal with the issue of drainage and flooding and whether or not we're going to be a stronger and more resilient city. And, and so um, that's important. We are making, we still want people to come. We are a growing city. We want to continue to grow. But instead of sprawling, you know, we're looking at doing some other things. And, and like I said, in terms of how we're going to develop and, and build in the city, those rules are now changing as well. But Mayor Benjamin of Columbia, South Carolina, uh, density is good for uh, reducing greenhouse gases, reducing traffic. But getting to density means getting across NIMBY. We don't, people don't like high rises in their neighborhoods. So how do you convince people that density is good when they don't want more people in their neighborhood? They don't want a high rise blocking their light, that sort of thing. That's a tough sell. You know, um, 
I think this is one area in which mayors are, are uniquely um, able to, to dialogue with our citizens. Uh, you know, I, as I visit our friends in Washington, we're, I know all three of us spend a great deal of time on a regular basis. Uh, sometimes it seems like the, the discussions there are just removed from reality. Uh, I, I see our, our citizens in, 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 in church, and when we visit synagogue or, or mosque, I see them at the grocery store. Uh, at the traffic light, I get advice and counsel from our, uh, our, our, our citizens. The ability to, to, to talk about, about uh, uh, tough issues is, is sometimes lost, I think, on, on some of our federal representatives. I can talk to our citizens about hundreds of thousands of new jobs in, in clean energy. I can talk to them about how we help their children deal with asthma, uh, uh, the opportunity to lower their power bills by uh, dealing with solar energy. We can talk about, about, about the, the benefits of vertical development and what it means in terms of tax base that this one building, this one 300,000 square foot building downtown produces more tax revenue uh, than a 300 unit subdivision in the outskirts of town without the environmental disruption, physical disruption to build infrastructure to get there. And by the way, 63 cents of every dollar that comes in goes to the school district to help provide opportunities for kids all across our, our city. There's, there's an argument around urban, about urban, smart, sound, dense urban development surrounded by strong neighborhoods. And, and in cities like ours, in 15 minutes, you can be in the, in the rural hunting for bore or fishing for bass if you want to. Uh, but, the, but there's an argument to be made, but that's, that's a face-to-face that's -face conversation that, that mayors have every single day. And I think we, we tend to be uniquely qualified to have those conversations. Mayor Sylvester Turner of, of Houston, I have to admit, I was surprised when I saw that you were leading a group of mayors supporting the Paris Climate Accord, being you know, Houston oil and gas companies. A lot of those oil and gas companies are trying to slow down the transition to a, a cleaner energy economy. So why are you back in Paris? supporting the Paris Climate Accord that the U.S. is now trying to walk out of? Well, number one, it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, that's, that's, that's number one. Number two, we all want to leave a, a world better than the world that we inherited, okay? And so that's important. You can't, the science is real. Uh, we do need to make changes. Um, and coming from Houston, the energy capital of the world, you know, we recognize that uh, you can't just continue to do things the same old way and expect something different. That's not going to take place. Um, and so it's, it's, it's in all of our best interests. And quite frankly, when you look at renewable energy and solar, there are more jobs created in that arena than in the old traditional arena. So um, it's, it's, it's and then when we look at the fact that we are all trying to build a more resilient city, what we want in the city of Houston, we want a stronger, more resilient city. And I don't think there's a better place to be able to make the argument that you can be the energy capital of the world and you can also place a great deal of emphasis on, on recognizing that there's climate change and looking at alternatives and making your city stronger and resilient. And the, the, the two don't necessarily have to be at odds with one another. And that's what we're trying to demonstrate in the city of Houston. Mayor Suarez, a lot of your party Republicans are doubting Paris, trying to pull out of Paris. Where are you on Paris and how is it relevant to Miami? I'm, I'm very much in favor of, of being a completely energy independent uh, city. I, I think that uh, I think that we're going there irrespective of what anyone believes. And the reason why is because before it used to be uh, sort of an existential environmental argument. And I think now it's becoming an economic argument. I mean, you have a situation where um, it, it's the, the largest power plant 
in the universe is the sun or in the solar system is the sun. And so, you know, our ability to harness that power is becoming so inexpensive that it would be foolish for people not to not to do it. You know, and, and by the way, not only that, but I supported a, a program um, in Miami called the PACE program, which allows you to do energy efficient right. retrofits to your home and put it in your tax bill and it pays for itself. So you, you have, you put solar panels on your home. We're a very sunny city, obviously. So, you know, I, I can't speak for every city in the United States, but you put solar panels <laughs> on your home and you are, you are almost essentially off the grid. And that's irrespective of the fact that there's no battery capacity right now. I mean, once battery technology, uh, you know, comes on board and you can store energy in your home, I mean, it's game over. I would not be investing in gasoline companies or oil companies. I, I, I wouldn't. I would not advise anybody to, to invest any money with all due respect to, to, to my mayor. I, I just think it's, it's, it's not even about, it's not even about at this point, uh, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it. It just so happens that it's a great environmental argument, but the economics of it are so dramatic that, I, I, I really feel that, and, and so I think it's a beneficial thing because obviously um, we as a city and I think as a country and as a world want to be harnessing energy that is renewable and harnessing energy that is not going to negatively impact our, our ability to live. So it, it, we're, we're trending in the right direction, and, um, and I, I'm in favor of it, of course. We're talking about climate change in America's cities at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Sylvester Turner, mayor of Houston, Francis Suarez, mayor of Miami, and Steve Benjamin, mayor of Columbia, South Carolina. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. I'm David Capelli. I actually am from Miami-Dade. Uh, I serve the county mayor, Carlos Jimenez, on his Board of Millennials Policy Board. Um, I wanted to ask each each of the mayors here, how are you engaging and working with diverse millennials on these poignant issues so that we have more diversity and actually solving these problems for the most vulnerable populations in each of your cities? We'd like to tackle that first. Uh, Mayor Suarez. I'll start. Uh, I, I was actually invited by the conference a couple of weeks ago to... to speak on a millennial mayor's panel. So I didn't realize that I was still a millennial. Uh, <laughs> I'm 40, so I don't know. I think I'm, I'm on the cusp. <laughs> but, uh, but, but and, and I think everybody on my staff is a millennial, uh, on my mayor's staff. And I, I think, you know, uh, I, I forget who was saying it, um, you know, technology and the, the knowledge-based economy is, is, the, is sort of the macro economy of, of where we are uh, um, right now. And so as a city, we are in a global competition for um, survival in that, that reality. And so I think, uh, you know, as mayors, we have a, we have a duty uh, to pay attention to all the different segments of our society. I think you get a tremendous amount of wealth of knowledge and energy and ideas from the millennial generation. And so um, I've probably taken a little bit of heat as mayor, because all my entire staff is is millennials, essentially, but uh, but but the truth of the matter is, uh, uh, they're very. It's a very hardworking, um, idea-driven, uh, passionate um, generation. So um, it, it certainly inures to my citizens' benefit, um, and and so that interaction is 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 daily for me. Mayor uh, Turner. Yeah, I think it's important you have to include millennials at the at the table of decision making. 
Um, and I know when I, when I ran for office, my daughter, who's 30 years old, and said, Dad, when you become mayor, um, don't forget about us. You know, uh, you can't talk about building a city for the future if the future is not sitting at the table today. And uh, I take that very seriously. And so uh, part of what I've done, a significant part, is to place millennials at the table of decision making so that they can advocate and include their ideas. And again, you know, what I say to people is that uh, from an age-wise, I may be a little bit older than Mayor Suarez. <laughs> Uh, but that doesn't mean. Much wiser, though. But that Much doesn't wiser. mean that you can't. You don't have ideas that can relate and, and be a part of the millennial generation. So, um, but you have to include people. You can be diverse, but diversity doesn't necessarily mean in terms of ethnicity or language or religion. Okay. Right. So diversity is income in many different forms, and you have to include that diversity at the table of decision making so that they can advocate for themselves. Yep. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate <clears throat> One. Uh, so this question is for Mayor Benjamin, although given Mayor Turner's comment on 100% clean energy tonight, I invite all the mayors to respond. Um, Columbia recently became the first city in South Carolina to commit to 100% clean energy uh, by 2036. Why was it important for Columbia to make this commitment and what message would you share with mayors across the country as to why their city should join Columbia in making a commitment uh, in a just and equitable transition to 100% clean energy. You know, we, we relish the idea of being um, the state capital in a state where people <laughs> don't expect a lot of progressive thought. Um, so whether it's banning bump stocks or being the first state to ban texting while uh, city uh, ban texting while driving, or making this commitment to 100% clean energy, uh, it's amazing. We, when we stretch in, in this, this it was, it was, we're the blueberry in this, in this oh. tomato soup. It's amazing how other cities then begin to follow. We have to, we have to model the type of behavior that we know that we ought to expect for all other cities to follow. And uh, both of my colleagues here are, are right on point. If America's cities lead, and we lead our metropolitan economies, and we do it together, and we lead not just as the municipal corporations that we are, but recognizing that these goals are meant to be citywide goals, that, that, that we're doing this in partnership with our, our, our for-profit and non-profit partners and, and public agencies, that working together with some of our wonderful institutions like the Sierra Club and, 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 and others, we can do this, and we can do this, and it won't be driven by bad policymaking of one administration or another, that together that America's citizens can help change the world, indeed, and we're going to keep doing it. Greg Dalton has been talking about building climate-smart cities and greener economies with three mayors on the front lines of climate change. Steve Benjamin of Columbia, South Carolina, Francis Suarez of Miami, Florida, and Sylvester Turner of Houston, Texas. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California, Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.